If you have your Bible, let's uh, turn to Ecclesiastes. Um, if you don't know where that is in the Old Testament, if you find the book of Psalms and go right, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it's a part of the wisdom literature uh, that is in Scripture. Ecclesiastes, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses uh, in this book. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. Solomon is the son of King David, and he really starts out of the gate by saying, these are the words of the teacher. He calls himself a teacher. Some of your translations might say preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So Ecclesiastes is really a journal that Solomon allows us to peer into. I don't know how many of you journal. Some of you may journal every day. My wife is an avid journaler. Uh, I've tried it a few times. I, I just didn't like it. I didn't get into it. Uh, I do have uh, what I call my black book, and I, everything God teaches me, I put that in that book, and uh, that's kind of what I want to hand down to my children one day. And yeah, so that I, but if you journal, typically your journal is filled with questions about life, about marriage, about kids. Uh, usually people who journal will journal their prayers. Sometimes you'll journal your frustrations. Sometimes you'll journal about a difficulty you're going through, a deep valley that you may be encountering in life. And sometimes you just become a little philosophical in your journaling and you try to answer questions like what, what is really the point of life and is life really worth living and you know, what about this and what about that? It just seems like the same cycle over and over again, right? We're pretty much people and creatures of habit. We get up in the morning, you probably pretty much have the same routine you do every day. Uh, you get up, whether you shower and eat breakfast or eat breakfast and shower, or maybe you don't shower, ooh, as my wife would say. But, uh, yeah, but we primarily eat, you know, pretty much the same things. You go to work, you do your thing, you go to lunch, probably go to lunch about the same place, eat a lot of the same things, Chipotle. Uh, might be your daily thing. And so you work the rest of the day, you come home, you're tired, you may have children to deal with, you may not have kids at home now. Uh, so you have dinner, you watch some TV or the news or whatever it is you do in the evenings, then you go back to bed, you get up and you do it all over again. And so life becomes this monotonous routine if we're not careful. And even the things that we have to navigate through, I mean, it begins to feel like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. It's just like the same thing over and over again. And even the things that we deal with, um, the same old issues seem to come up over and over and over again in life, and we never get them solved, and it's always the same thing. And life just becomes monotonous over time, which is why we are so easily bored, and which is why we are so prone to entertainment, right? We look for ways to entertain ourselves, whether it be books, sports, TV, movies, whatever it is that kind of gets you out of the rut and routine of life. The problem is then it becomes the rut and routine of life, and even that becomes boring. And so we start looking for something else that's going to bring meaning and purpose and excitement in our lives. And the cycle just goes on and on and on and on. And that's what this book is about. At the end of it all, you die. Thank you, Captain Obvious. We all die. If you were to overhear someone reading the book of Ecclesiastes and did not know they were reading this book, you would swear you're listening into a conversation in a philosophy class in college. Long before the Greeks had Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, 
the Hebrews had Solomon. And so this is kind of a philosophical book because he is seeking to answer the question as you read through his journal. The ultimate question he's trying to answer, is life really worth living? When it's all said and done, when it all comes to an end, has it really been worth it all? So in the middle of this book, he's trying to answer and fill us in on the middle of the bookends of life, right? Where did we come from? God. Where are we going? God. What's in the middle? God. And so God's, but what if I don't believe I came from God? And what if I don't believe that I'm going to God afterwards? Then I'm, what I live out in the middle is going to be totally different. I'll have a totally different worldview, values, perspective. I'll not approach life the same. And so Solomon is going to wrestle with all of this. Here's what life looks like when you set God aside and God does not factor into your life on a day-by-day basis. Here's what it's going to, here's what's going to end up. Here's what it could look like if God is factored in and he is a part of your everyday existence. So my belief is that the story of Solomon is the story of the prodigal son in the Old Testament. Early on in his life, again, he was the son of King David. King David had turned the nation of Israel's heart back to God. Solomon was raised in what we would call a Christian home. He was taught about the things of the Lord, and he embraced the things of the Lord early on. And he got married, and he wrote the Song of Songs about the love he had for his first wife. And very romantic, very passionate book in the Bible. Midway into his life, he began to drift a little bit in that relationship with God. He began to pull away more and more, and, but he began to write the book of Proverbs. These are truisms that he discovered in life, and he shares those with us as a part of the wisdom literature. But then Solomon at some point makes a huge transition, and he pulls himself completely away from the Lord. His heart is turned away from the Lord, and God warned him that if he took all these foreign wives from other nations, they would pull his heart away from him, and Solomon's response is like ours, oh, no, no, Lord, I can handle this, I got this, and that's exactly what happened. So God was no longer a part of his everyday existence. God was no longer overseeing or shepherding his life, as David had written about in the 23rd Psalm. And so as he wandered further and further from his heavenly father, he engaged in every single sinful activity he could find himself in. And then at the end of his life, he finds himself in that proverbial pig slop. And he comes to his senses. And so he writes about it. And he makes his journey back to his heavenly father knowing that he doesn't have much time left on earth. And after indulging himself for an entire lifetime, he sits down and then he writes a very, very honest autobiography. It is his journal. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. And he wants to warn us about how meaningless, how hopeless life can become when God becomes the God of the fringes rather than the God of infusion in your everyday existence. And so nothing rivals, he says, spoiler alert, when you come to the last chapter, here's his summation. Fear God and obey him. 
Fear God and obey him. In other words, nothing rivals obedience to God. Nothing rivals intimacy with your heavenly father. Nothing rivals his presence, his passion, or his, his pleasure than to walk with the Lord and infuse him into everything. And so he says, I, I'm coming to you as a teacher. I, I want to download some wisdom to you so that you do not make the same mistakes that I have made throughout the course of my life. Because I've made some tremendous mistakes, and I don't want you to walk through those same deep, dark valleys. Because I'm telling you, when it's all said and done, when life is all over, it's you and God. That's it. It's you and God. And what you have done with this life that God has entrusted into your care as you have stewarded it through your lifetime, if you put God on the fringes, here's what's going to happen. This is how life is going to turn out. And you'll notice what he says. His conclusion is, I, I came to the end of my life and I realized all the things that I've done, all the things I've indulged myself in, all the ways I've tried to find hope and satisfaction and fulfillment and every good thing in my life and contentment. He said, I'm telling you, it was all meaningless, completely, utterly meaningless. That's a good way of saying I wasted my life. I had all kinds of opportunities to do all kinds of things. But all I did was indulge myself because that's all I cared about. Now, I want you to think in the backdrop of this, the guy, this preacher, this teacher who has come to the end of his life and he's had all these experiences. I mean, Solomon had more wives than anyone, right? He had 700 wives, for crying out loud. He had 300 concubines, but those are just stripper girlfriends, okay? So he has, so that means, translates, Solomon tried to fulfill his life through sexual pleasure more than any other person alive. Now, many of those marriages were alignments with other nations, marrying the king's daughters, hoping that the, that nation wouldn't war against you. But God warned Solomon right up front, they will drag your heart away from me. And so can you imagine how awkward it was for Solomon? I mean, you know, trying to satisfy 700 wives and 300 concubines, you know, like, Solomon, you never come around anymore. We never have any FaceTime. We never get to go on dates. Can you imagine how awkward it would have been at holidays? trying to deal with 700 wives, 300 concubines, and your mother-in-laws all at one time? Amen. Picture God showing up to you and saying, you know what, I will give you anything that you want. Just tell me what it is. Now, depending on whatever it is that you desire in that moment in time in your life, you may ask for fame, you may ask for fortune, you may ask for attractiveness. I don't know what it is you might ask him for, but Solomon asked God for wisdom. And because Solomon did not ask God for wealth or power or a long life, he threw in those also with wisdom. So people traveled from all over the known world to Solomon to hear what he had to say about issues in life. He was the wisest man, the second wisest man who ever graced this planet other than Jesus, being the wisest. He had all that going for him. But there's a big difference between wisdom and knowledge. Our world is obsessed with knowledge. We are obsessed with information. We have more information than we have ever had. I mean, we have it at our fingertips, right? You have a phone, an iPhone. You have a virtual computer in your hand, and you can Google it. You can sear it. You can do whatever you want. You can find out more information than, than the past 100 years put, combined in a matter of seconds because 
you know, like when my kids were growing up, they come and ask me a question. If I couldn't answer it, guess what? I would, hear, I would say the same thing I heard growing up when my parents couldn't answer a question for me. They'd say, well, I don't know. Go look it up. Well, the only way you had to look it up was if you had a set of encyclopedias. Uh, how many had a set of encyclopedias growing up? Yeah, or you had to go to the library to look it up. Now, now in this day and time, listen, dads, I'm, I'm telling you, when your kids come and ask you a question, especially when they're young and they don't know about Siri or Google yet, and you can say, well, let me think about that a minute, and you turn around like, Duh. And give them the answer, they think you're brilliant. <laughs> but you're really not. We have more knowledge. We uh, have a lot of knowledge, but we're not the smartest generation. Let me make a statement. Having knowledge without wisdom is a trap. You suddenly know things you don't have the power to properly address or solve. And that's our society. And that's why we're in such a mess. We've got more knowledge in America than we've had ever. But we're in a, one of the biggest messes. Not probably the biggest mess, but it's quickly escalating that way. Solomon also had a lot of money. A lot of money. It took seven years, 153,000 workers, seven years to build the temple. Remember, King David had the desire to build the temple, his father, but God wouldn't allow him because he was a warring king. Solomon was a peaceful king. He was ruling and reigning during a time of peace. And so seven years to build the temple of God, which was a magnificent structure. Do you know how long it took to build Solomon's palace, his home? 13 years. 13 years. This guy had more money than he could ever spend in 50 lifetimes. He had vast gardens, all kinds of building projects, even outside of his palace, outside of the temple. Money was no object because money was flowing in quicker than he could have ever spent it. But Solomon was, I'll give him credit, was he, he was a pretty generous king to his subjects. Now, I've worked among some of the wealthiest people in the world. I've been to the country clubs, I've been in the skyboxes at the professional events, and I worked for Bass Brothers when I was in seminary, and Collectively, they were among the top 10 wealthiest individuals in the world, and I worked in their corporate offices, and you, know, you would think that if you're that wealthy, you would ought to be the happiest people in the world, but what I discovered was, as I engaged in their lives, and, and on a day-by-day -day basis, they're some of the most miserable, pe miserable people, they're, most of them were cheating on their wives, and um, their kids were a wreck. But yet, we chase after that, right? We think that wealth is the answer, but yet, what I've discovered that the more money you make, the more it may shrivel your soul because God gets edged out and we don't know how to translate and fuse God into that wealth. Now, there are many wealthy people who are believers who have learned how to do that and they support the work of the ministry of the kingdom of God in vast, vast ways. But for others, they just keep looking for something within them that they cannot find. You know, yesterday I did the memorial service for Grant Adams. Grant Adams was not a wealthy man, physically wealthy, but he died one of the wealthiest men because he loved Jesus and he told everybody he could find about Jesus. Those who worked with him for 35 years would say there are two things that Grant would always talk about, 
Jesus and the Ohio State Buckeyes, right? Those were his two favorite topics. If you visited him in the hospital, I'll guarantee you, every nurse, every doctor that had any contact with him had heard about Jesus. So though he may not have been physically wealthy, he died a very wealthy man because who knows who is in heaven because he took the time to tell them about his love for Jesus. And so now he's coming and saying, let me tell you, I'm ready to download, Solomon says, some things that I've learned. I have immersed myself in wisdom and wealth and pleasure and work and fame and sex, the very things that control the lives of most people in our day and time. And he says, I'm going to tell you, at the end of my life, it was all meaningless. It was without hope. It was without satisfaction. It was without contentment. There was nothing there that I should have lived for. And so Solomon says, now, in light of that, what's our job? Our job's to shut up and listen to him. That's what he would say. Just be quiet long enough to listen to me. Before you think you're smarter than I am, before you think you're wiser than I am, before you think that I've not experienced something that you might experience that I never got to experience, he said, I want to tell you what, I've done it all, experienced it all, been there, done that, and I'm telling you, it is all meaningless. This guy had more money than Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos combined. He was smarter than Albert Einstein, had more ladies than Hugh Hefner and Jeffrey Epstein combined. And he says, listen, if these guys were to come up here and want to speak about their lives and how they perhaps have wasted their life and what it meant to, to live their life, you would give them a very keen ear, right? You would hear what they have to say. Solomon says, listen, done it, been there, listen to what I have to download. I'm telling you, it's all meaningless. What a summary statement. That is not a good way to sell a book. Right out of the gate, it's all meaningless, vanity. Not worth it. Life's not worth it. You're going to die. But that's the way he starts. When someone asks you how you're doing in life, what's your typical response? Fine. Doing okay. Okay, great. Wonderful. We move on. Sorry about the lights going on and off. Um, but if you were to ask Solomon, hey, how's your life? Meaningless, hopeless, without purpose, it's not worth living. What do you say to that? How do you, how do you respond to that? You're, not, you're just like, well, nice talk and, and move on. It's, it's kind of an awkward situation, but yet all of us have felt this way from time to time. Pointless, hopeless, meaningless. And we tend not to say it out loud. We tend not to say it in public. If somebody in public asks us how we're doing, even if we're having a very rough season in our life, we tend to say, well, because we, 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 we know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And we put on a face and find it's okay and wonderful. Solomon's just not that way. And neither should we. You're having a rough season in your life? Tell somebody. Describe it. Lay it out there. Let people help you. Let people guide you, direct you through that period in your life. And so the reason Solomon does this is he wants to grab our attention for us to pause and to ponder the fact that life is messy. So there are two things you're going to learn in life very quickly. And the first one is this. You'll discover that life is utterly futile. Well, what does it mean by being futile? It means that life is like being on a treadmill. You're working, 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 running, 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 striving, 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 but you're not getting anywhere. 
right? That's why I hate running on a treadmill. It's so boring, right? You, you're running, running, put all this effort, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not like running through a beautiful park or I'm not like running through the woods or anything. I'm just like right stationary in the same place. Sometimes life is that way. It's just that futile. It's like getting stuck on a roundabout and you can't get off of it. The first time I was in London, England, uh, several years ago, I didn't know anything about roundabouts. Americans hadn't gotten into the roundabout system yet. And so we rented a car. I wasn't driving. We were in this car, six of us in this car. We get now a roundabout in London is like six lanes. All right. So we got in the middle lane and you couldn't get out, right? Because cars, there's so many entrances into it because it's so huge. And cars, he ca- we went around this thing for 35 minutes trying to get out of it. And we discovered that the only way you do it is you just honk your horn and move over whether the guy's gonna let you or not because of, they will, right? So newsflash, in case you're in London. So Solomon says, you know, everything in life, this futility, it's meaningless, it's, it's vanity. Now that word is havel in the Hebrew, it means breath, it means um, a vapor, uh, like a puff of smoke that goes up. Uh, it's, he's saying that life is short, life is brief. It's like a, breathing a sigh of frustration, a sigh of weariness. I'm just always on the same treadmill, and I, I'm just always going around the same circle, and it's just the same stuff over and over again. My wife and I, are, wives and I, are always arguing about the same stuff over and over again, and it seems like we never get anywhere. We take three steps forward and two steps back, and, and life is just, is just like meaningless. And he says it's like a vapor. Like it, it moves so quickly. You know, when you're young, you think life is just like, oh, it's just trudging on and on. And the older you get, you realize the faster life, life goes. It's like the years just are clicking off so quickly right now at the phase I, I am in in life. And, and he says, man, it's just, so, it's just so futile. And so we try to escape life's monotony and futility by filling ourselves with visual images, right? So things like YouTube and Instagram and Netflix. I said it right, Phil. Last week, two weeks ago, I, said, I, I was saying Netflix, and these guys are up in, the, up in the booth up there going, every time I said it, you know, like they're flexing their muscles as though they had some. But anyways, uh, <laughs> but, and, and, and he says, and then we, we just fill our ears with stuff, right? He's going to say this in a minute. And, you know, with Pandora, Spotify, whatever it is that you fill your ears with, and we just, uh, it's just on and on. But notice the key phrase in verse 3. He says, what does... Man gained from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun. That's a key phrase, under the sun. It's used 29 times in this book. And he's, what he's saying is, this is what life is like um, outside of God, without God's revelation, without connection to God, just living for the world and the things the world has to offer, thinking that this is all there is to life, is what the world has to offer. And, and all of the gifts that God has given to the world, we have set the giver aside and we just want the gifts and we hope and pray that those gifts will bring ultimate hope and satisfaction and contentment in our lives. And we just keep running after them. We just keep striving for that. We keep hoping that this next thing will do it for us. And so this is what life under the under sun. It's living life without God, 
if there is a God, and there are those who say, well, there isn't a God, there's atheism, there's deism who says, well, God is a, it, it may exist, but he is an absent landlord, all right? He just wound up the, the world, and he's letting it run on its own, and however it pans out, that's how it pans out, and, and so God is not active, he's not personal, and that's what he means by life under the sun, and he says, man, I, I work, I toil, I, I, I work and work and work because we try to find meaning and we try to find our identity in what we do. And we tend to wrap our, our self-worth around what we do. See, people who, who may, uh, let's say, you, you know, you, you're a laborer on a construction job, which means you get all the crappy jobs, right? You, you dig the ditches and whatever nobody else wants to do, they have you doing it. And so it's almost like an embarrassment. You can't say, well, I'm an engineer on the job or I'm a pipe fitter on the job. I'm just a laborer. And that's the way I started out when I was 15 years old. I started working construction with my dad, and I was a laborer. I mean, it's just whatever. There's no status there, right? You don't, I don't want that to be my identity. And so we, we, we ascribe for and we try to get a, 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 in a position where that becomes our identity, especially for men. And this is going to be important later on. And sometimes people, you know what, I, I want, I'm building my identity around what I do, so I'll start a company and I'll work 80 hours a week. And, and they do. They work 80 hours a week and they make the company successful and then they die and their sons take it over or daughters and then bankrupt it within weeks. That happened to my dad. The company he worked for that I was working for when I was 15 years old it's a very successful construction company worth millions of dollars, and the father finally retired from the position. He had five sons. All of those sons specialized in different areas, took over the company. Within five years, they bankrupted it. And so here's a guy who worked all of his life for something, and it's just gone. Solomon says, man, this is meaningless. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? Why are we striving in such a way? Do you know every building that Solomon built was destroyed. All that money, all that time, all that effort. He goes on to say, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. In other words, we live life under the sun. Sometimes it feels contradictory. It just doesn't make sense. There's no easy answers. For example, you have a friend who loves Jesus loves the word of God, loves the church, loves people. They're 30-some years old, and they die of cancer. You got somebody who doesn't love Jesus, could care less about God, atheist or whatever, could care less about God, who have, created, who, have, who have conducted all kind of heinous crimes and lived to be 90. Where's the fairness in that? That's what Solomon's saying. Where's the fairness in that? How do you explain that? And so we do. We come to God and we, want, we demand those explanations. Why is it that my child died? Why is it that my baby was stillborn? What about those who don't even care if they have kids and they mistreat them and they abuse them? God, where's the fairness in that? Where is the fairness in life? That's what he's going to ask. That's, these are the questions that philosophically Solomon is asking and he's going to start fleshing those things out. And then there's this whole aging thing. What's the fairness in that? 
The older I get, you know, the, your bones become brittle because of lack of calcium and your skin begins to lose, lose its elasticity and shrivels and your age spots multiply and you look at the back of your hands, you're like, dang, man, they look like my dad's. I, the older I get, the more they look like my dad's. You, you start losing brain cells at a rapid pace. And, and the worst thing about aging is you get excited at Christmas when somebody gives you some, na- some nose hair tremors. I mean, it just excites the daylight out of you. You know you're getting old, okay? <laughs> just a polite way to say that. So, so what's the end game in all this? You're going to die. And there's no given age where death comes knocking at your door. There's nothing in life that says you're going to live to be 95, just lay back in your bed one night and just go to sleep and it's in the presence of Jesus. Now, that may be the way you die, But there's no given age, there's no given way. There are a million different ways you can exit this earth. And Solomon's trying to make sense of all this. He's like, why is it this way? And he says, and and then you die. Mark Twain said, the world will lament you for an hour and forget you forever. There's a sobering thought. I mean, as I asked you a few weeks ago, how many of you know the first name of your great-grandfather? That's only three generations away. Most people don't. And we have this uh, illusion that, you know, when I die, that my great-grandchildren are going to sit down and and say, hey, tell me about the adventures of my great-grandpa Greg. That's not going to happen. They won't even know me. They won't even remember my name. Probably. Now, those of you who are really into genealogies, you may understand and know that, but you didn't really know the person. But it's just a few years before you were forgotten. And Solomon says, this is why it's all meaningless. This is why there's no purpose in life. It's because we just toil and we strive and we're on the treadmill. We're around the roundabout a thousand times and then we die and it's all over with and people forget us. In fact, creation, the trees laugh at you because they were here when you got here and they're still here when you're gone. Every generation, he says, generation, generations come and generations go. Every generation thinks they know how they're going to fix this country. You ever notice that? Every generation, right? Generation before us, they got it wrong. We're going to get it right. They're foolish. We're wise. They were silly. We're smart. Um, you know, they were selfish. We're selfless. We, they had a bunch of bad ideas. We got a bunch of good ideas. They were just lazy. We're going to work really hard at it. Every generation thinks they know what it takes to fix this nation, to fix the world, so that there's never going to be any more prejudice. There's never going to be any more poverty. There's never going to be any of these things. And there's going to be no more wars. And they come up with a plan to fix it, change it, and save it. And sorry, uh, but we are the same. And this is why lo- young people love causes. You know, I want to jump into the cause. I want to, because I want to bring heaven to earth. And, and we're going to make a better future for the world. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of the way I entered into ministry. It's the way most people enter in ministry. Man, I can't wait to get, you know, educated and get out there. And we're gonna ch- I'm going to change the world with the gospel of Jesus. And what I found out is that people pretty much stay the same. And they don't really change all that much. And, and then when they get tired of you, they leave anyway. So, and so, you know, think about all the things that we have tried to solve in just in the last 30 years. I've been watching programs on the National Geographic about drug trafficking and sex trafficking. And the amount of manpower and money that has been poured into these two causes alone is astronomical, but none of it has changed because you cut the head off the snake 
on this guy, and there's another one waiting to take his place. And Solomon would say, that's what I'm talking about. Man, it's just meaningless. It's like purpose. I, I strive to make things better. I strive to make the world better, but it just doesn't seem to be better. Why are we doing this? Is life really worth living? And you know what happens when people work only under the sun? They get depressed. And when it seems like there's no change and no hope, they become suicidal. And the suicide rate in America has been rising for the last 10 years in huge proportions. And the age of suicide keeps getting lower and lower because people are without hope. Solomon says, I've come to the end of my life, and I want to tell you what it amounts to. It's nothing. It's boring. It's meaningless. It's a vapor. You try to grasp it. It disappears. Everything you're going after, it never brought me joy. I was chasing the wind. What he says the sun rises, sunsets, hurries back to where it rises. Just like, you know, even creation is kind of monotonous. The wind blows to the south, it turns to the north, round and round it goes. Everything's returning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And in other words, oh, even creation is monotonous. Even creation's on a treadmill. Even creation is in the roundabout of life. And it's just, he says, all things are so wearisome, more than I can say, the eye has never even enough of seeing, the ear has, can't feel its hearing, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already a long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. And so he says in these last verses, not only is life futile, it's frustrating. It's just frustrating. Have you found out to be true? <laughs> I have. Some of you who are extroverts and very optimistic kind of people, you, you, you may not think so, but he says no matter how much we see, we're, we're never satisfied, we're never content, there's always something better. I mean, when I, the very first time I saw the Grand Canyon, I mean, I was just like in awe. I'm like, oh. you know, you try to take pictures of it, and I'm not a great photographer, but pictures just can't even begin to paint the magnificent beauty uh, and awesomeness of the Grand Canyon. Now, maybe Denny can take pictures that give it beauty. He's a great photographer. Um, but I, I couldn't, you know, I, when I got my pictures back, I was just so let down, right? Because I just couldn't see. But even having seen that, I mean, you're never content. You're always looking for something more, other images and other things that you listen to and whatever it is that you, you fill your head with because we're, we're just like in, again, that roundabout. And he goes, in verse 10, he says, like history repeats itself. It's, there's nothing new under the sun and somebody says, well, wait a minute, I have a new idea, I have a new plan, I have a new strategy, I have a new insight, I have a new breakthrough. And he's saying, you know what, it may seem new to you, but I'm telling you, it's been there, done that, it's happened before. Now, what Solomon is not saying is that there are not new things invented in the world, because we, clearly there are, but what he is saying, there is nothing new that we can discover to break the cycle of what is dissatisfying to us right? 
In other words, no matter how many new gizmos and gadgets we come out with, we love our gizmos and gadgets, but it doesn't take us very long before we're bored with them. And we're on to the next gizmo and gadget, right? We thought when cell phones came out, uh, I mean, that was like, oh, uh, you know, it's like Jesus came down and handed us a cell phone. And now we've had cell phones and, and they can do incredible things. But then after we've had them for a while, we're just kind of bored with them. And then it's like, you know, I, I hate the fact that I get this bill every month that I have to pay that's an enormous amount of money just to have a cell phone that's connected to the internet, right? So uh, this is the way life is. It's, it's just cyclical. And, and verse 11, he says, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm doing things that are a big deal, but people aren't even going to remember me. It doesn't really matter. I mean, think about your favorite sport, whatever that is for you. And um, think about the pinnacle of your favorite sport, the Super Bowl, the Final Four, uh, the Masters Tournament, NBA Championship, World Series, whatever it is. You know, if I were to ask you, tell me, what's the winning team or the winning individuals from, from 10 years ago in that sport, at the pinnacle of that sport, can you name the team? Can you name the names? And most of us cannot. We forget, right? We, we could, you know, ask Siri and then, and then say, well, this is the team that won or this is the individual. And these are people who are at the pinnacle of their, their lives and, and, and their ability to, you know, be a participant in sports in a way that you, mortals like you and I can't even begin to even fathom being able to make the team, let alone win anything, right? And so they're forgotten, But you know who do you, you do remember? People who do horrible things. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mayo, who killed hundreds of millions of people. We remember that. What Solomon is saying is, you're not going to make a difference. You're not really going to change anything. You may have an idea that somebody else didn't already have or a plan that somebody else didn't already try. It may be new to you, but I'm telling you, it is not new. It has been tried before. You just didn't know about it. This is such a depressing book. Why would Solomon, right out of the gate, grind us down? I mean, it's like, okay, this is why people do not read through the book of Ecclesiastes. You get through the first 11 verses, you're so depressed after reading those 11 verses, you're like, I'm done with this book. There's got to be a happier thing here that I can read. Why is Solomon grinding us down? I think the answer is um, of what he's challenging us to do. He's challenging us to infuse God in everything. Remember, you're living under the sun, but Solomon knows that there's a God above the sun, but he's not really been living in tune with that God. That God's just been kind of an addendum to his life, a kind of a footnote, but his heart has turned way away from the Lord, and so you have believers like that, and then you have a world who won't even acknowledge God because they've been taught all of their lives that you're, you know, you're the random product of chance out of an evolutionary process. So there's really no meaning and purpose in life anyways. Eat, excuse me, eat, drink, and be merry because after that you die, right? So they just go for the gusto. And they're thinking that these things are going to bring hope and purpose and satisfaction and contentment. And so we just keep chasing after the same things over and over again, thinking that this time it's going to be different. And there is a reason why all these pleasures that we have in the world leave us hollow and empty. 
And here's why. I love infomercials. I'm an infomercial holic. Like if I go to the Ohio State Fair, the first place I go is to the infomercial building. They may, come, they may have come out with a new set of Ginzu knives that I don't have. Now, the infomercials, you know, draw you in. Usually they come on real late at night. Like, you know, you're bored and you're, you're, you're just flipping through channels. And there's an infomercial. And you, it just kind of sucks you in. And they give you the, it's the same old slogan. And so the slogan goes something like this, you know, um, there's something wrong in you. There's just something missing. There's something in life that you need that you just don't have. And, and so they start talking about that and you say, yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and uh, I feel incomplete. I feel unsatisfied. And they say, now, if you just buy this product, if you just experience what it is we're selling to you, I'm telling you, it will fill that hole in your life. It will bring ultimate satisfaction in your life. This product will forever change you. Sold. And of course, you always know what they say in tagline. You better hurry up and call because they're almost all gone. And by the way, if you buy now, we'll double it for the same price, right? So, sold. And here's the problem. This is how we try to sell Jesus to the world. As another infomercial option. There's a God-shaped hole in your heart, and so there's a sense of alienation. There is a sense of incompleteness within you that you're going to try to fill all of your life through sex and drugs and money and success and whatever else that you try. None of those things have ever worked. None of those things have ever filled the void in your life. They only lead to wanting more, but Jesus promises that he will fill that hole, and he's the only one who can fill it, and he's the only one who fits there. He'll come into your life and give you meaning, and he'll give you significance, and he'll give you purpose, and you'll feel complete, and he's the only one who can satisfy what your soul truly longs for. So Jesus becomes another consumer option offered as a way to gain fulfillment and satisfaction, except this time it's on a cosmic scale. Well, if that were true, and the reason it's not is because Jesus never made those promises, by the way, neither did God. If that were true, then why is it that so many Christian Jesus followers still have no contentment, no satisfaction, no sense of fulfillment, something missing, yearning after, falling at, following after, going after, one thing after another, thinking that this thing will do it for me. Ultimately, this thing will fulfill, this thing will fill, this thing will change my life, and so... We go after it. There are many things God will use in order to draw you to himself. Things like mystery, tension, unfulfilled desires, longing, emptiness, separation, loneliness, difficulty, futility, loss, grief. Why does God use those things? Because he is preparing the soil of your soul for a life that is filled with trust and hope and faith. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't change a person's life. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't literally transform you from the inside out. 
I'm just simply saying this, is that if we just offer Jesus as some kind of formula that just tag Jesus on your life, and that's what people do. They don't infuse him in their life. They just put him on as an addendum to their life because they don't want to go to hell. They went up the fire escape, and they kind of put him on as addendum, a footnote, and try to live life and just like Solomon did, right? Their heart is not really in tune with God, and so they just keep chasing after the same stuff over and over and over again. How else do you explain that the um, divorce rate is at the same as an unbeliever? Right? The divorce rate among the community of Christians is no different than in the lost world. And there are a lot of things about the Christian community that are no different than the lost world is because we have not learned to infuse. And here's why that happened is because if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 where it all fell apart, when God created Adam and Eve, he says uh, he gave them a beautiful relationship with himself, walking with him in the garden, they, he gave them each other as companion, lifelong love mates. He gave them the ability to have children, to have sexual satisfaction and pleasure, even though they're not trying to have kids. He gave them a responsibility in the garden to rule over his creation. And God says, all these things, because I've been infused in all of this, will help bring meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your life. What happened when they chose to listen to Satan who said, listen, if you eat of this tree, you will become like God. When they ate of that tree, guess what God took away? He took away the walk, daily walks together, the intimacy. He, he banned them from the Garden of Eden. They lived east of Eden. So God is no longer infused in their relationship, not infused in their life. He's on the side note. He's on the footnote. And as a result of that, now when God spoke to them, he said, Adam, your work is no longer going to give you any meaning. It's no longer going to give you any purpose. It's no longer your identity. All it's going to give you is thorn and thistles and the sweat of your brow. Eve, by the way, your children going to be a painful thing. And it's not just going to be painful in childbearing. It's going to be painful in child rearing. They will rip your heart out if you're not careful. And that happens a lot in relationships between parents and their children. And so everything became painful and futile and frustrating because God would no longer allow those things to bring us meaning, purpose, and ultimate satisfaction in life because if he did, we would never need him. Why is it that no matter how much money we make, we always want more? Why is it that no matter what your desires are, they're insatiable? You enjoy them for a, a, a while, but it leaves you craving for more. Why is it that the most intense pleasure suffers the law of diminishing returns? It takes more and more to get the same effect. Why is it that no relationship is perfect, no joy is ultimately fulfilling, and no accomplishment is permanently satisfying? Even Tom Brady, after he won his third Super Bowl ring, said to the reporter, there has to be something more to life than this. The reason these things do not satisfy, fulfill, and give us meaning and purpose ultimately in life is because God made it that way. God realized the only way to get his stiff-necked, rebellious creation to return to trusting and obeying him in a relationship was to use their own self-interests against them. See, we became more consumed with the gifts than the giver of the gifts. And we just replace him.
we set him aside in case we have an emergency. So I wrap this up very quickly. Uh, I got three minutes here. So here's the good news. The good news is that, Ecclesi- that Solomon in Ecclesiastes is going to take this fact there's a God above the sun. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who ultimately brings us lasting meaning in our lives. Because everything we need comes through Christ. We, we need a new covenant, right? So a new covenant relationship through Christ, the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross, means that we can unpack and unload all of our guilt and all of our shame. We don't have to carry that around any longer. That Jesus, who came into the fallen world, suffered alongside of us, and he is someone who can actually do about the suffering we encounter in this life. He gave us new life. He came up out of the grave and gave us the power of eternal salvation so that now every spiritual Blessing is yes in Christ. He gave us a new heart, according to Ezekiel 36, 26. And there, now there, we are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come, and therefore now God has indwelt us with his spirit that enables us to change and transform our minds and our hearts. And so the living God sits on the throne of the universe, and he says, behold, in Revelation 21, 5, I am making all things new. And he invites us to be involved in a new activity in sharing the gospel and a new home, a new heaven, and a new earth. And so when this life frustrates the daylights out of us and we feel like we're on this endless treadmill or this endless roundabout, he says this life is not all there is. And death does not win. Death does not have the victory. Death is simply the doorway that is enters into the realm of the new heaven and the new earth that God has created for us, where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more futility, no more frustration, that everything that God created in the beginning that got spoiled by sin will be remade in the end so that sin will no longer have any say or dominance in my creation. He says that relationship with Jesus gives us significance to our lives One of the beautiful things that God does is allow us to participate in what he is doing in the here and now. The one who needs no help, the one who has all power, calls us alongside of him to be co-laborers. Listen, God understands the greatest use of your life is to spend it on something that's going to outlast you. People, everything else is temporary. People are eternal. The wisest use of our time is just that is to infuse God in my life and leverage everything I have for the purpose of God's kingdom activity here on earth. Not just to get more money so I can buy bigger cars and a bigger house and live a better lifestyle. What if I leverage that money in strategic ways to help further the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is what Solomon is trying to get us to see. Listen, he says, I had it all, done it all, bid it all. I bought it all, had it all. It was all meaningless, meant nothing. But if I would have infused God in my life and leveraged it in the way that he desired, there I would have found meaning and purpose and a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment of what God was doing in me. Can you imagine when Jesus rose from the grave for 40 days, it says in the book of Acts that he talked about one thing and one thing only, his passion, the kingdom of God. And he said to his disciples, listen, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to hang out till the Holy Spirit comes upon you and he will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the earth. I want you to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe all that I have taught you. 
And so how can a band of former converted prostitutes and cheating tax collectors bring Rome to its knees? Because that is the power of the gospel. The power to save, the power to heal, and the power to deliver us from those strongholds in our minds that have held us captive all of our lives. And that's why this year I'm focusing on a gospel reset. We have an unfinished task and an unchanging message to the world, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God says, take everything you do, your vocation, your house, the things that you have, your money, your time, and let's invest it in the kingdom so that the kingdom is furthered and expanded because at the end of your life, when it's all said and done, it's just you and God. And Jesus will ask you, what did you do with what I gave you to further my kingdom? I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to hang my head and say, well, Lord, you know, I was about to get around to that. God has given us his Holy Spirit to intercede for us and to enable us to pray passionately and powerfully. He's given us his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who is our teacher, who brings to our minds the words to speak. Therefore, we can speak boldly. He gave us his Spirit who permanently indwells us, who enables us to suffer courageously, whether it be from riots, torture, poverty, or any other type of persecution. He could not stop, the enemy could not stop the early church. God has given us his Holy Spirit to equip us with gifts to serve him faithfully. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing, but he brings meaning into everything. And he empowers us for life change. So don't look for the big, bold things of life change. Look for the little things. When was the last time you got up and said, Lord, I just want to thank you. I can see in color. Can you realize how boring it would be if you only saw them black and white? Lord, I just want to thank you today that I can taste my food. Those who have had COVID, who lose their smell and taste, it's horrible. Or those who are on chemotherapy as cancer patients who oftentimes lose their smell and their taste, they don't want to eat. These are the little things of life that bring meaning to us and transformation when we think about all the things that God does for us. Listen, God wants you to enjoy the things that he has blessed you with, but he wants to be in the middle of it, not on the outside of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I, I pray and trust that you will help us um, during the course of this, this series to just stop, pause, listen. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't approach this as, well, but Solomon, you don't understand. You don't understand my circumstances, this, that. That we would not make excuses, but Lord, that we would just allow our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. that rather than spending our entire life chasing after something that really is meaningless and without purpose, that we would invest our lives in things that are meaningful and that do have purpose, things that are going to outlast us, things that are truly going to help transform the lives of those around us. So, Father, teach us, 
in these days ahead, how to infuse you into every single aspect of our lives and to be consciously aware of that so that we begin to see you. Even when you seem to be hidden, we see you. We see your activity. We see your presence. When we're going in, through our own personal deep, dark valley, that we will, like David, say, oh, but I don't fear because I know your presence is with me. Your rod and your staff, man, they're bringing me comfort. They're bringing me encouragement. I may not understand what you're doing, Lord, but I know that I can trust you. We thank you, O oh Father, that we have a Savior who understands, who's walked our journey, who's lived our lives, and who lives to, now to intercede on our behalf. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to do what we cannot do on our own. And we acknowledge that today, that apart from him, we can do nothing. So may you take our lives and what time we have left here on this earth and breathe into us a new sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and contentment that can only be found through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.